The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Page 5 in the Pew Bibles, Genesis chapter 6. Our sermon text is verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 1 until verse 9 just to give the context leading up to it, though we're going to focus on verse 9 and really look a bit at what we learn from the life of Noah, not from this text only, but more broadly in the Scripture. But let's give good attention to the Word of God, worship Him in the way that we listen to it as it is read to us. Genesis chapter 6, reading from verses 1 until verse 9. The Word of God. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. We thank you for your word, O Lord God, and we pray that you would come to us now. Come and bless your people as we hear your word. Again, give us grace, O Lord, that we might receive it with reverence and with awe, with thanksgiving and praise. Cause our knowledge to deepen. Cause our faith to be strengthened. Cause our love for you to become more fervent. O Lord, by your spirit, use your word in our lives and make us to be more like Christ for the glory of his great name, in, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we have made our way through this series on godliness, excuse me, one thing that we've certainly found is that there is there's a lot involved in being godly. In this series, there there are so many topics which we could take up, and we've taken up a lot of topics. We've seen that, that a godly person is a person of knowledge and then a person of faith. We saw that a godly person is a person of love, that he's one who is like God and one who loves the word of God. We've seen that the, the godly one is one who mortifies sin and one who heavenly. We considered last week how a godly one is one who is godly in all of his or her relationships. So we've covered much, and truthfully, in in Thomas Watson's 24 sections showing those different characteristics of a godly man, there are many topics which we're not covering, at least not in separate sermons. 
Watson tells us that a godly man is a, is, is a man who is careful about the worship of God, one who serves God, not men, one who prizes Christ, one who weeps, one who has the Spirit of God residing in him. That's a lot, isn't it? But wait, there's even more. The godly person is one of humility and one of prayer and one of sincerity, one who is zealous, patient, thankful, one who loves the saints. Uh, Watson writes that a godly person is one who does spiritual things in a spiritual manner, one who is thoroughly trained in religion. Our last sermon will be on how a godly person is one who strives to be an instrument in making others godly. Are you taking notes? Are you keeping all of the track of all of this? Are you feeling a bit overwhelmed? If you are, that's kind of the point here. You might be thinking to yourself, wow, if I'm going to wake up every day and be a godly person, I better keep this massive list by my bed, right? In all seriousness, it's good for us to think about all of these different characteristics of godliness. But if you, you feel a bit overwhelmed by, by the thought of all that which godliness entails, perhaps you will be encouraged In fact, I would say be encouraged by what is before us this evening, the the reminder. We've perhaps all heard the the expression, I think maybe I've used it before, that, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I think whoever came up with that uh, it was defining the word religion very differently than the Puritans defined religion. Talk about a false dichotomy. To the Puritans, the practice of true Christian religion was all about relationship. Yes, they gave attention to details in terms of what, what godliness looks like. But at the heart of all of it was, was the blessing of, of living in fellowship with God. And so Thomas write, uh, Watson writes that the godly man walks with God. And so it was with the godly man, Noah. He wasn't just following some moral code, some list of rules. What does our text say? Noah walked with God. We'll see later that that expression, walked with God, can mean pleased. Uh, pleased God. To walk with God is to to be one who pleases God. But but the idea of walking with God is the idea of living in close proximity with God. And what a marvelous work of grace God did in Noah to bring this about. Let it fill, fill us all with hope this evening in terms of our own calling unto godliness as we consider this message. Our message this evening is this, that Noah walked with God and so shall we. Noah walked with God, and so shall we. I want to unpack that message by having us consider three points about Noah's walk with God. First, it's proof of God's faithfulness. Secondly, it's called to possess what God has promised. And lastly, it's evidence of, of God's transforming Grace In doing so, I'm going to co- try to kind of follow the paradigm I sometimes use when administering the Lord's Supper. I think it's always helpful to kind of think to the past. We remember what Christ did, and we think to the future, the fruit of Christ's finished work, where we will eat and drink with, with him in glory, and the, and the implications it has for the present, the power of, the, uh, of Christ at work in us as we feed upon us. We're going to do a similar thing this evening as we think about what the life of Noah teaches us. But consider first then, 
Noah's, Noah's walk with God itself was great proof of God's faithfulness. Thomas Watson writes that walking with God is walking above the earth. A godly man, he writes, is elevated above all sublunary objects. That person must ascend very high who walks with God. Just think about that for a moment, if that's true, uh, dear Christian. What does that mean? It means that in, in calling you unto godliness, the Lord is, is bringing you upward, upward. Uh, causing you to to rise up above the earth to dwell with him, to dwell with him on high where where he dwells, high above the earth and all of his glory. But but, but you see, to think that the the very thought that we should do so, well, that that was God's great purpose and design. That was God's plan from the very beginning. He created us for the purpose that we might walk with him. We, we, we speak of how Adam was, was to walk with God by obeying him. He was to obey him perfectly, and then he was to enter into life. We call that arrangement in the garden, the covenant of life. Had Adam obeyed God in the garden, he would have had enter, inherited and entered into fullness of life. To think that Adam and all of his posterity would have walked with God in glory forever. And ever, we know what happened. Sin came into the world and made a mess of things, didn't it? We, 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 we can conceive of the awfulness of sin when we think about it in light of this calling to walk with God. Sin is so wholly contrary to that, that call to walk with God. To sin is, is, is to walk not with God, to, but to walk against him. It's to align ourselves with the evil one, the great enemy of God. It is to forsake and to disobey God's commands and instead to follow the devil and his ways. And is that not exactly what happened in that very first sin, Adam's sin, our sin in Adam? Adam forsook God's commandment and he followed the counsel of the serpent. And just think about the tragic consequences of that. Adam and you and I, the whole human race, we became friends of Satan and enemies of God. We became a race of those who, by nature, do not walk with God. Were it not for the grace of God, no one would ever have walked with God. We all became his enemies, friends of Satan. But to think that we're looking back to how God was so faithful. He was committed to that purpose and plan to have for himself a people who would walk with him. And so, of course, God provided for another covenant, that covenant we call the covenant of grace. And God made that promise. He made that promise even as he was pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, the devil, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity Enmity between you, between you, Satan, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God promised to redeem of that fallen race. God would reclaim some, indeed a great multitude of those who had become his enemies, and they would again be made his friends, enemies of Satan, friends of his, those who would indeed walk with him 
as their God. Ultimately, we know that he would accomplish that great salvation through the suffering obedience of that one who is the promised seed of the woman. Jesus is that one who would come and who would perfectly walk with his God, perfectly, even unto death. His heel would be bruised, truly. He would come and he would suffer. He would endure the agony of the cross, but he would be raised again, and in his death, and resurrection, he would bruise, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy the work of the devil who, who wanted to keep us at enmity with our God by keeping us in our sins, under the condemnation of our sins, destined for judgment, destined for eternal separation from our God. Jesus came and he destroyed it, destroyed Satan's sinister plan. Jesus, of course, he did come. And he did die for our sins and he rose from the dead and he did this to the end that we would no longer live as God's enemies but that we would walk with him. All this God had promised and the point we're making is that the life of Noah points back to that and it shows, see how faithful God is. Noah is this testimony of God's faithfulness to his promise. Why is it that Noah walked with God? It is something truly marvelous that we see, isn't it? Talk about a shining light amidst the darkness. Just think about the life of Noah in this context. We read in verse 5 that that description of of the world, how the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Talk about a, a great proof text of our doctrine of the total depravity of man. But it's in that dark context we read about this, this one Noah who lived as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. How is it possible? It was possible only because of God's grace. Verse 8 tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a, a recipient of the Lord's kindness and mercy Now, as some interpret this, the point here is that that God showed kindness and mercy to Noah because he was righteous and blameless, because he walked with his God. God mercifully spared Noah the destruction which came upon the earth because he walked with God in righteousness. And even if that is the idea here, the question remains, how was it that Noah became one who was blameless and upright. We know ultimately it was only because of God's faithfulness. Ultimately, the Lord is the one who himself is blameless and righteous. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God who is keeping his promise that he made way back in Genesis 3, 15. And to think that, that even, even centuries before Christ came into the world, already the, the grace of Christ was so powerfully at work Noah's obedience was the fruit of the the, the finished work of Christ, what Christ would one day accomplish. Indeed, by God's design, we know that, that Noah was a type. He was a prophetic symbol pointing forward to Jesus. Indeed, let the, the life of Noah point you to Jesus this evening. Look to him, brothers and sisters. It's good and right that we look to Christ, that we see him. That we see his grace, his glory, his great salvation as he is revealed in all of the scriptures. 
That's part of godliness, doing so. I mentioned a bit earlier that one of Watson's characteristics of a godly man is section 7, where he writes and talks about how a godly man prizes Christ. That's a wonderful section. We're not preaching a separate sermon on that section or that topic specifically, but we have endeavored, and we rightly do endeavor to make that something of a pervading theme in, in, in all of our preaching, certainly including this particular preaching series, Christ and all of the scriptures. Watson shows us that, that Jesus Christ is in himself precious, and the godly man esteems him precious, that Christ is precious in his person, and he is precious in his work, he is precious in his offices, prophet, priest, and king, all that he is, all that he has done, all that he does. And if we are godly, if we are godly, it's all because of Christ. And if we are godly, then we will count him as precious. And we will delight in seeing how he is shown to be so in all of the scriptures, all of the wonderful ways in which he is revealed in the scriptures. Noah's walk with God was a testimony of him, the faithfulness of the Savior. And so also shall it be with our walk with God as it was with Noah's walk with God. Well, how does that happen? Let's move to our second point about Noah's walk with God this evening, which was its call to possess what God has promised. We look back to God's faithfulness to his purpose and plan from the beginning, even the promise he made and how that would be fulfilled in Christ and indeed was fulfilled in Christ. And then we look forward to the way that its ultimate fulfillment comes in, in, in those future heavenly glories unto which God is calling us. What was it that God promised Noah? Well, of course, Immediately, he promised that through Noah's obedience that he, Noah, and his family would be saved through the flood and they would inherit that new world, that is, this, this present world, the, the heavens and earth that now exist, as it's called in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But we know that, 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 that Noah's experience, God's promise, certainly pertained to things beyond this, this present post flood world. And I want, to, I want to show us that from the book of Hebrews. Turn your Bibles with me if you'd like to see it yourselves this evening to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read several verses and have us note some things. Hebrews chapter 11. Now this is the great chapter on faith. To walk with God is to walk by faith. And what do we learn about faith from Hebrews Chapter 11, well, look at your Bibles. Let's start with verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So things future, hoped for, and things invisible, not seen. Of course, that which is future is not Seen by faith, we lay hold of, we possess those things which are future, things yet unseen. Not just Noah, but all of the saints, uh, they all lived by faith and, and they, they were enabled to walk with God by doing so. Jump down and see this as we look at verse, uh, verse 13, or flip over a page in your Bibles to Hebrews eleven thirteen, and know what we see here. This is 
This is after the writer has mentioned Abel and Enoch, and we'll talk about Enoch. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and verse 13 tells us, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 14 continues, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been seeking, rather, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You can keep your finger there. We'll look more at Hebrews 11, but, but that city is that city uh, to which Abraham was looking forward, right? That, that city, it's called that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, as it says earlier in verse 10, whose designer and builder is God. Brothers and sisters, just think about that. Think about that city. Think about what makes it so wonderful of all of its glorious delights. What is the best part? Is it not God himself? That God is the maker of that celestial city. That God will be there. God will be there both to possess and to be possessed by his people. There we shall indeed see that God has been, oh, so, so faithful to his promise. For there we shall indeed walk with him. We shall walk with him in glory forever and ever. And just think about all of the descriptions of the saints in terms of how do they live? How was it they lived? How shall we live? How, uh, what are the saints like in terms of their disposition towards that place? Well, we see what they're like. By faith, they see it. They see and, and, and from afar, they, they greet the things that are promised. They seek them. They desire them. They look forward to what God has promised. They look forward to God himself. Friends, is it true in your lives this evening? What kinds of things do you seek and see? What are the things that you delight to greet from afar and desire what kind of things do you long for with eager expectation? Maybe you live with a longing for your next vacation. <laughs> Maybe you long for the next book to come out in a book series you really love. Can't wait to get your hands on that book and read it. Maybe it's uh, uh, a, uh, the, the next movie. You love to greet that next movie in a movie series, the next Marvel movie. And none of those things are wrong necessarily. But do you long for heaven? Do you long for God's presence? Do you find him? Do you believe that he will be? And do you find him to be more satisfying than any of the delights of anything in this world? And is that evident by your daily walk with him? If you look back and uh, jumping back to verse 7, I'm kind of going uh, back and forth here. But note again what it says specifically about Noah, Hebrews 11 verse 7. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world 
and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Again, you can keep your finger there. We'll look at that once more. But we can note a few things. Of course, we we see the justifying grace of Christ revealed in Noah. He was a sinner. He was one who stood in need of that righteousness that comes by grace through faith alone. He became an heir of that righteousness. We note, secondly, certainly, and we will see in our next point how how true faith leads to obedience. Noah looked to the future things, and it moved him unto immediate action and reverent fear. He got busy building that ark. But the main point I'm making here at this point concerns those those future events, those, those events which were as yet unseen. So that Noah's Noah's walk with God was for him, and it's a call for us to possess what God has promised. Noah possessed what God had promised. Now, again, on one level, it was was the flood event that he was thinking about as God spoke to him, and the the post-flood new world which would immediately emerge. But as we think about the faith of Noah in the context of what we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, I think that, that we have to say, it's wonderful to think about this, that even before the Lord came and spoke to him and revealed his plan to destroy the world with a flood and gave him that, that command to build the ark, already Noah was living his life looking far ahead to what God had promised. Already he was looking to those eternal realities to which God was calling him. He was possessing those things by faith. He was looking to God himself, and he was possessing him. And so, yes, to use the words of Thomas Watson, Noah was, was walking above the earth. He was elevated above sublunary objects. He had indeed ascended very high. And just think about the effect that such had on his life. Well, that, that's what enabled him, that's what, what empowered him unto, unto such great obedience. And that brings us to our last point this evening, the last thing we note about Noah's walk with God. We see its evidence of God's transforming grace. We look to the past, God's faithfulness to what he had promised and how his faithfulness was shown in Christ Uh, We we see the future, the ultimate fulfillment of God's faithfulness, and then we see the powerful transforming effect that seeing that and embracing it by grace, by faith, has on the way we live our lives in this world. Isn't that the point of Hebrews chapter 11? It's that, that that faith, that assurance of things hoped for, that conviction of things not seen. That, that is what empowered the saints to do such great things, to walk in such great obedience. They did great things for God. They pleased God. If you look back at Hebrews 11 at verse 6, what does it say there? It, it says that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see that? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But ah, with faith, by faith, the saints, they did such great things for God. They pleased God. Now, if you jump up one more verse to verse 5, where we read about Enoch, 
Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Of course, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 5 and verses 22 through 24. Uh, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. It may have been just a few years before Noah's birth that Enoch was taken up into heaven. So just like his great-grandson after him, we read about Enoch in the Genesis text that that Enoch walked with God. Now, I mentioned earlier that that expression, walked with God, can mean pleased God. In fact, this Hebrews 11 Uh, Chapter 11, verse 5, language comes from the Genesis narrative as it is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Both in the case of Enoch and Noah, it says that they pleased God. To walk with God is to please God. But I want us to think about that, walking with God, pleasing with God, and, and think about the lives of Enoch and Noah, as we conclude this evening, and just glean some things about their lives, you know, we might ask the question, is walking with God, is it about living our lives in communion with God, or is it about doing things in the service of God? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, right? It's not an either-or, it's a both-and, yes. It certainly is the former, isn't it? To walk with God is, is to live with God, to live in close proximity to him, spend time in the enjoyment of his blessed presence, it's to, to be with God as we spend time in, in the word and in prayer, walking with God. You know, when, when, we, when we think about godliness, if indeed, if, it's, if indeed it is helpful to have a list by your bed as it were, in terms of what godliness entails. Well, uh, have on that list being deliberate, being faithful about spending time with the Lord, private worship, and certainly, of course, corporate worship, absolutely so paramount, but but thinking particularly about, about private worship, having the time when you are all alone with your God, coming into the presence of God and saying, I will be still, and I will know that you our God. Watson writes that that walking with God implies the familiarity and intimacy the soul has with God. Friends walk together. Friends walk together, he writes, and console themselves one with another. The godly make known their requests to God, and he makes known his love to them. There is a sweet intercourse between God and his people. Cites the last part of First uh, John 1, 3 there, where it, where it says, of course, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. To walk with God is to enjoy fellowship with God. By the way, let, let the life of, of Enoch encourage us with regards to, to how the Lord is pleased to use the faithfulness, uh, our, our faithfulness in our walk with God in the lives of our children and, and, and uh, their children and their children. No doubt part of the reason of Noah, for Noah's faithful walk with God is because of that amazing legacy of, which was his, the, the legacy of a, a godly great-grandfather and perhaps a great 
uh, grandfather and father as well, Enoch had walked with God. How long had Enoch walked with God? You know the answer to that question? It was a long time. Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And that's the way, the nature of walking with God. It's something that continues. Watson writes about how godliness involves continued progress in grace. He writes, it is not only a step, but a walk. There is a going on, a going on towards perfection. A godly man does not sit down in the middle of his way, but goes on till he comes to the, the end of his faith, using the language of 1 Peter 1.9 there. He walked with God. How did he spend his time? 300 years, what did he do? You know, there's a very interesting historical fact about Enoch. This, this may shock you. You might be surprised to hear. It's kind of reading between the lines in the text. But he lived all of those years with no smartphone. Can you imagine that? What? How did he survive without being bored out of his mind, right? I think maybe you see the point I'm making here. How do we spend our time? How much time do we spend in frivolous, useless pursuits, right? Staring at that phone or electronic devices, I have to say that we would probably do much by way of helping ourselves walk in the faith of Enoch if we would take those electronic uh, devices and put them in a drawer and lock the drawer, maybe hide the key, right? Don't allow those things, the things that fill up our time to hinder us, to, to be as obstacles in the way of our spending that time, walking with our God, time alone with God. Of course, walking with God also, yes, it involves acts of visible uh, piety, visible acts of service to God. Thinking again about Noah. We were told that, that he was a preacher, right? He was a, a herald of righteousness, Second Peter chapter 2 Verse 5, after all, he built an ark, didn't he? In some ways, I suppose it's true, as, as, as one minister suggested, that, that the ark was his sermon. Or clearly, it was a big part of his message. Talk about a huge and powerful sermon illustration. What does godliness look like? What does it look like? We know in the heart, a heart that loves God and loves communing with God. But what does it look like even on the outside, it loves people. It loves the souls of the lost. Uh, there's so much we could say by way of application if you keep a list of what godliness entails. Maybe that list will include for you, your, your daily walk within God, with God will include for you involvement in the lives of unbelieving friends, right? Maybe you, you purpose in your life to, 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 to communicate with that unbelieving a person and on a regular basis just to ask how they're doing. You purpose regularly to pray for them, pray for their salvation, pray for and seek after opportunities to share the gospel with that person. Walking with God certainly involves walking in those good works which we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us never see those good works in which God calls us to walk. Let us never see those as something of an, an overwhelming burden, a big list that burdens us down, but rather let us see it as all part of the joy of knowing and walking with our God. 
in closing this evening. Just think about Enoch's life. Yes, he walked with God. What an amazing testimony to to our own experience. We walk with God as he takes us upward into glory. He walked with God for 300 years, and then he was not. God took him. What an amazing transformation. What a change, right? What, What glory, what rapture. And yet, in some ways, what was his experience? Well, he just continued in the very same experience that was his experience on earth, right? If, if Watson's right about that description of the godly man, well, Enoch lived his entire life in that, that ascent high up, elevated above sublunary objects, kind of fitting, right? That, that God would just take him and he would continue in the presence of God the very way in which he lived his life. Obviously, that was something unique, Enoch and Elijah are the only two individuals we read about being taken up into heaven without ever tasting death. And yet, in calling us to walk with God, God is calling us to live in the same enjoyment that was Enoch's experience, to walk with God. When we do evangelism uh, downtown, one of the things we, we do is we have a sign, and it asks the question. It says, Dear friend, where will you spend Eternity, and then it cites Isaiah fifty-five six. Seek the Lord, uh, seek the Lord while He may be found. It's a good conversation starter. Good thing to think, uh, encourage people to think about eternity. Pray that the Lord would use that message in the hearts of those with whom we talk, and as, as we engage them and seek to share the gospel. Our prayer is that that they they would think about. There's no hope, no, no, no a hope of spending eternity anywhere but under the judgment of God separated from him unless they come to trust in Jesus. And, and that's true, by the way, of, of any who would be here this evening. If you've not trusted Jesus as your Savior, I would invite you to think about where you will spend eternity without him. You'll know nothing of walking with him. And indeed, you, if you know nothing of walking with the Lord in this world, then you will be far from him, uh, separated from him in the darkness, the, the place of, of judgment forever and ever. But to think that God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, that if you would come and, and trust in him, that you can have your sins forgiven and eternal life and know that you will walk with him forever and ever. But it will be a call to walk with him even in this life And as I think about that question, where will you spend eternity, I think there's a sense in which the the godly man would answer the question this way, I will spend eternity in the very place which I have loved to spend my days the most in my days on this earth, in the presence of God, to walk with God. May that be our prayer, may that be our praise, so may we walk in the faith of David. That's kind of, I think, what David had in mind in Psalm 145 when he wrote these words I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. And listen to this every day I will bless you. What did David mean? Was he thinking of the future or was he thinking of the present? I think he was thinking about entering into the experience that would be his for all eternity, even in the present, every day. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. How marvelous that David was saying, I will do today and every day that which I will do forever and ever 
and ever. May that be our prayer, may that be our praise, as we walk in the faith of David, in the faith of Enoch, in the faith of Noah, as we walk with our God. Let's pray. We would pray for grace to do so all the more, Lord God, how we bless you, how we praise you, how we praise you for a Savior who walked with you perfectly, that we might be brought to you and that we might walk with you all of our days. Oh, Lord God, that's our desire and prayer, and we pray that you would help us to do so all the more faithfully. You've reminded us that without faith it's impossible to do so, so we ask that you would come by your Spirit and work through your Word in our hearts and in our lives this evening, that you would come and strengthen our faith, strengthen it, O God, according to the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. Grant that our eyes would be ever fixed upon him and that by your grace then we would walk with you all of our days until at at last we are with you, walking with you in glory forever and ever. Hear us, Lord God, and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.